Our Old Testament reading comes from the book of Exodus. On the third new moon, after the Israelites had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day, they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They had journeyed from Rephidim, entered the wilderness of Sinai, and camped in the wilderness. Israel camped there in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the Israelites, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession out of all the people. Indeed, the whole earth is mine, but you shall be for me a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the Israelites. So Moses came, summoned the elders of the people, and sat before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. The people all answered as one. Everything that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Glory to you, O Lord. I have made your name known to those whom you gave me from the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words that you gave to me, I have given to them. And they have received them and known in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am asking on their behalf. I'm not asking on behalf of the world, but on behalf of those whom you gave me, because they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. And now I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them in your name that you have given me, so that they may be one as we are one. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Hey, good morning, everybody. It's great to be with you again. My name is Andrew Garbarino. And being a Center City resident, I may not have the chance to meet many of you, so it's good to be here and worship with you this morning. Um, as, as Chris mentioned, I am uh, recently ordained, and I'm ordained to what's called a specialized ministry. So I'm ordained to be a Christian educator. I'm a PhD student studying to be a seminary teacher, and I study the Bible, the Old Testament. So that's my vocation. I don't actually work here, okay? So... Don't ask me to do stuff because I only volunteer. Um, but it's really great to be with you. And I've just been blessed by this community over the past three odd years as I've been going through the training process. And there's been so much support um, officially through the consistory and the pastors and, and just through the whole congregation. So I'm so thankful for that. It's good to be with you. Let's pray uh, as we get started. May my words and my preaching not be with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that our faith may not rest on human wisdom, but on the power of God. Amen. Our Old Testament reading this morning comes from a really critical moment in the history of Israel. Uh, they have been in slavery in Egypt for centuries. They um, are then reminded that they are God's people when God sends Moses to them. 
and then God rescues them from Egypt with 10 plagues, defeats the mightiest nation on the earth, brings them to the Red Sea, and Pharaoh's chasing them. God opens the Red Sea, brings them out, single-handedly defeats Pharaoh, and brings them into this uh, new existence um, with the promise to have their own land and no longer be slaves. And what we, where we are here in this passage is at Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is actually the destination of the Exodus. A lot of times, especially um, Christians, we think about the Exodus as the sort of the end of the, of the journey. We don't think about the fact that God's actually bringing them already beforehand, tells Moses, I'm going to bring you to the mountain, Mount Sinai. When, when Moses meets God at the bush, uh, if you recall the passage, God says, this will be a sign that I'm, I'm speaking the truth to you. You will worship God at this place. The bush is actually at Mount Sinai. So God brings the people back to where he was. And it's important to know, to this point, the people haven't actually seen God, so to speak. They haven't met God in this way. Moses is the one um, who has met God face to face and God, that he communicates God's word to the people. Um, uh, they've seen God do amazing things but they haven't actually met God. And here at Sinai, literally, they're going to see God. God's going to thunder on top of the mountain. He's going to show fire and flames and is actually going to speak to them. In the next chapter, we have the Ten Commandments. And God actually speaks the Ten Commandments from the mountain. And the people hear, and they're really scared by this like massive voice of God and the thunder. But So God is really meeting the people in a dramatic way. And our verses here at the very beginning of the Mount Sinai story, and they're sort of a summary of this relationship God is gonna enter into with the people. Um, and uh, so maybe we could just look a little bit uh, more closely at a couple of the verses here, um, verses four through six. If you wanna pull your bulletin up, you can look along or I'll reread them for you. Um, so starting in verse four, God says, "'You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, "'how I bore you on eagles' wings "'and brought you to myself.'" So this is the background for God's relationship with the people. God has already done amazing things for them, and they have seen it. It says, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. This beautiful image of God bringing them through the wilderness. They've already been in the wilderness actually three months at this point. So God has taken care of them. He's provided them water from the rock, not once, but twice. He's fed them with manna from heaven. They actually got in a conflict with another nation, and God um, saved them through this battle. And so they've been brought here already. They've seen so much that God's done for them. And that's the background for the relationship. So it continues in verse 5. Now, therefore, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession out of all the peoples. Indeed, the whole earth is mine, but you shall be for me a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. So here, God elaborates on what their relationship is going to be like. And again, it's sort of a summary of what's to come. God says, you obey my voice and keep my commandments, or my covenant. And the covenant here just refers to all the commandments and all the revelation of who God is and the instructions how to build the tabernacle, all these things that are actually going to occupy not only the next couple chapters, but the next like two books of the Bible where God is giving Israel um, and revealing himself, uh, his relationship, and giving them the commandments that they're to follow in order to engage in this relationship with God. But it's important to see that this is not a demand that God places on them. This is not a threat, if you do this or else. But it's an invitation. It's an invitation rooted in God's prior relationship with Israel and his love for them. And his chose, that effect that he's chosen them. And he's inviting them, participate with me 
in this vision that I have for the world that I'm trying to bring in through you guys, inviting them into that. So the call is not um, to, to make God's love a condition for, uh, or to make their actions on a condition for God's love, but it's an offer of God's love, an invitation for them to enter into that. And one uh, really word that stuck out to me looking at this passage was um, when it says, you will be my treasured possession out of all the nations. And that, that phrase, treasured possession, is, is one word in the original language of this passage, which is ancient Hebrew. And it's a really, it's kind of a rare word. It's an interesting word. And it seems to mean one's personal savings, like the contents and what one puts in a piggy bank. So it's, it's not the income you get from your job that you spend on food and that sort of thing. It's what you set aside for a specific kind of purpose. There's another um, text outside the Bible that uses the same word, and in it, there's a hired hand who works um, for a shepherd, and he ch- saves up this treasured possession and then eventually buys his own flock. So it's the sort of what you put aside. And so what's your treasured possession? It does, it's not just what you own, right? It's not just something you own, but it's something that you've owned that you have for a specific purpose, and there's even this emotional attachment to something that you've worked hard to save up, and that's what... Uh, God is calling Israel his treasured possession, something that he possesses and he loves and he has a specific purpose in mind for. And this is a beautiful picture of our relationship with God, right? That God has brought us out of our Egypts, brought us through our Exodus and our Red Sea, and has called us to himself, has brought him on, us on eagle's wings to himself. And this is put in a really profound way by a Christian author and professor, Chuck DeGroat. And there's a quote in, on page three of your your bulletin, um, and this is what he says in part. He, God, whispers to his little children, you are my treasured possession. He speaks words of dignity and glory that an enslaved people long to hear. As we leave our many Egypts through the course of our lives, we continually find ourselves at Sinai, the identity checkpoint where we're retold the true story about ourselves. Identity checkpoint. I love that, that phrase. It's a, a beautiful way to express what God is doing here. God is reminding Israel and reminding us who we are. We are God's treasured possession and whispering it into our ear and inviting us into our relationship and into his presence. And it's just a really compelling idea. And I, I, I'm so energized by that. And I thought about preaching a whole sermon on this. But then it kind of struck me as I was reflecting on this. Tugart says, we continually find ourselves at Sinai. Now, Sinai is a place of encounter with God in a really dramatic way. Like, God's literally on the top of a mountain, thundering down to the people, speaking words to, like, an entire group of people that they're hearing. Um, and it's, pretty, it's a pretty direct experience of God. And if we're honest, probably most, I would venture to say none of us have actually had that exact experience. And it's very rare that we have such a palpable experience of God. And in fact, right, on a day-to-day basis, I don't, experience God's presence as much as I would like and as much as I sort of would see in this passage, right? It's, in fact, even if maybe we're, we feel like we have a closer walk with God, we often can more viscerally conceptualize the fact that God's walking with us or we can imagine God's love for us, but we don't as frequently, I think, for most of us, experience God's presence in speaking his words like into our lives directly. Like we don't experience that as much, I think. That's like a part of the Christian life that is hardest to come by. And I thought there's two reasons that I've experienced in my life as to why that's the case. 
two situations kind of would have brought that about. Um, and the first is we don't feel God's presence because things are really hard, right? We're, we're, maybe we're going through something very difficult in our lives, or maybe things kind of seem outwardly good, but we're just feeling really spiritually dry. Um, and in those kind of situations, maybe we're reaching out to God. We feel like we're, we're, we're spending time in prayer and we're begging God to be present, but it just, he just feels absent. And if that's where you're at this morning, I want to just say that that doesn't mean that God doesn't love you. And I'm really sorry that's where you are. I've, I've definitely been there in my life. Um, in my early 20s, I spent a couple years kind of in that place, um, alternatively between really just grief and depression and like not, but still not really feeling God's presence. Um, and what helped me in that time was just remembering that um, in Christ, we have a Savior who relates to that experience. Like we have a Savior who experienced loneliness and rejection and um, even an absence of God on the cross, he says, My, uh, why have you forsaken me, right? And we have a Savior who can relate to us in our weakness, as it says in Hebrews. So I hope that's a comfort for you this morning. So that's one situation where we might experience God's absence. But I think there's another situation and probably most characteristic of most of us most of the time, certainly characteristic of me more of the time. And that's that we don't experience God's presence because we're not really looking for it. Um, maybe we're, we're just kind of distracted in our lives and we don't spend a lot of time consciously thinking about um, inviting God's presence. Um, maybe we are kind of feeling apathetic about that. Maybe we are trying in a way to be present to God and we're like trying to do a lot. We're like, okay, I go to church, I volunteer, I have this, uh, you know, I give money, and I, um, I try to really be a good husband or a good wife or a good uh, daughter or son, and I try to do my best, and I'm trying to serve God, but we don't stop and just invite God's presence into that. And so we go through uh, our lives, and we don't experience um, God speaking to us. So how do we overcome that situation? I think this passage speaks to that second situation most clearly, and that's what I want to speak to this morning. Um, and how do we get out of that? Like, how do we, as the Groat said, says, like, come to our Sinai in that moment or in, throughout our lives? And I think there's really just a practical answer to that. And I think the, the primary way that we move out of that, those situations and fight against that tendency is just by stopping and creating space and time to invite God's presence in. And I really mean that in a practical way. Like, setting aside time and space in our lives on a regular basis to meet God. Um, so, and there's a, so let's look at the passage. There's an interesting thing about this passage. Um, if you look at the beginning, the very first verse, it says, on the third new moon, after they had gone out of Egypt, on that very day. It's very specific about the time that God is encountering Israel. And I think there's a particular reason for that. Israel had spent like over 400 years in Egypt in the story going through these like difficult years of slavery. And what God does is brings them out of that time and creates a new time and a new space where he's specially um, available and meets with them. Like God sets that time apart. Not only the time, but also the space. It says in the next verse, um, uh, they had journeyed from Rephidim, entered the wilderness of Sinai, encamped in the wilderness. Israel camped there in front of the mountain. So most of us, including me, and mind you, it's literally my job to read the Old Testament. It's like Cindy. It's like literally my job. 
I skip over this most of the time. Like, we're on Repidim, whatever, okay, cool. Um, moving on, uh, Eagle's Wings, like that part. Um, but, but actually, I think here it has a specific, there's a specific purpose for this, right? Like I said, Moses met God at this mountain. We're bringing back this mountain. This mountain is the specific place that God has chosen to meet the people. And it's in the wilderness. It's in a part separated from their um, uh, existence they had known before. They're taken out of their place of identity and brought into a new place where God can speak into their, their lives as a people that they are God's treasured possession. And the word in the Bible for this setting side of a special place for God's presence is holy. And it says in this passage, you will be a holy nation to me. And it says later in the same chapter that Mount Sinai itself is holy. And the, the basic meaning of holy is set apart for God's presence. We often think of holiness as moral purity or uprightness. And that's only part of the idea of holiness. Holiness involves moral purity only insofar as that is a necessary condition for God's presence because God is just and righteous. So holiness is primarily about God's presence. And so time and space can be holy if it's set apart for God's presence. So I think what God is calling us to do in our lives is to create time and space that is holy for God, in which we're intentionally inviting God's presence in. And what does that look like practically? There's a lot of ways that we can encounter God, and I only have a few minutes this morning, so I just want to mention one and, and elaborate on it, and that's intentional rest, or what the Bible calls Sabbath. The Ten Commandments come just a few short verses after this, and in it, God tells Israel, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. So a day, it's a time that is holy. Jewish uh, theologian um, Abraham Joshua Heschel famously called the Sabbath a palace in time. The Sabbath is, it's like a building of God's presence. It's a temple in time in which God um, specially uh, dwells in and becomes present to his people. It's a time dedicated to God. And for us, for Christians, the basic idea of Sabbath is a regular time dedicated to be in God's presence. And I think sort of the ideal of that is one day a specific 24-hour period in a week that we set aside for rest and encountering God. Um, and, and my family, we've tried to implement that unevenly with uneven success. And when we have done it, it's been a blessing for us. It's been a blessing for us. But that's some, not something that I've, I've achieved all the time. And I think Sabbath can occupy even smaller spaces of rest. So for instance, even taking a walk after work and intentionally not listening to your headphones, but just trying to enter into God's presence in that set amount of time that you, you set apart as holy for God. Or in the morning over your coffee, not scrolling the news or your email, but setting that time apart to encounter God. I think that can be a really powerful way of inviting in God's presence and giving this holy space and time um, for God. And what can make this rest um, intentional, right? It's not just resting, but it's one, um, setting aside distraction, right? Setting aside our normal course of life. For, for us, a lot of that is just technology, like turning off our phone and separating ourselves from what's the normal every day. And secondly, intentionally inviting God into that rest. For me, it's just really, really simple thing. At the beginning of that, whether it's a whole day of rest, whether it's the walk, whether it's just a time in the morning, just inviting God and saying, God, be present in this time. Just that simple prayer. And so that is setting aside space and time 
um, to meet God. And so, again, Sabbath is just one, one of those practices. Uh, you can, uh, prayer and, and reading God's scripture is another way of setting aside time to hear from God or just praying throughout the day, having a time of centering prayer over your lunch or something. That can be another way of doing that. And most likely, um, this is not going to be a mountaintop experience when this happens. And in fact, at first, it may not feel like really encountering God in it. I know for Sabbath, for me, uh, sometimes it doesn't, it actually makes me sort of worse. <laughs> it, and it feels like that in the moment because it brings out like my anxieties and my insecurity or my um, just uh, boredom, <laughs> right? And so it brings out bad things in me sometimes in the moment. But over the long haul, like God uses that time to speak to me. But it's not like a mountaintop experience. It usually comes out in just simpler ways. But those simple ways are really important. Like maybe God will speak to you and say, like in a point of encouragement that you need to hear. Like, I value in you in this way, and I need to remind you that you're, you're my special treasure possession in this way. Or maybe it's, it's a sin like, in your life that God wants to remind you of and say, you know, this is something we need to continue to repent from. Or maybe it's some kind of service in your life that God's calling you to. Oh, there's that person at work that you felt, you know, you felt the twinge in your heart to reach out to them and to love them in some specific way and calling you to do that. So those little things, quote unquote, are what the, the Christian life is really all about. And making space for God to speak to us is what enables us to receive God's grace to go up, be sent out, and to do those things. And the two great enemies of this in our culture are practically busyness, right, being too busy to do this, and secondly, a preoccupation with doing instead of being in God's presence. And actually, those are sort of two sides of the same coin. We act busy because we think what we do is all that matters. Um... And we live in a very busy society. So in some ways, I don't want to shame us for being busy. Like, most of us are actually paid by the hour, right? Like, we say things like, don't waste time, or that's not worth our time, or I spent time. Those are all money words, because time is money in our society, right? And like, in ancient society, for instance, we have in this passage, it says, the third new moon. And that's because for them, time was like the seasons in agriculture, so you tracked by the moons because you harvested these new moons and you planted in these new moons. So for them, it wasn't like that. But for us, time is money. And so it's understandable that we're busy, right? Um, that, that's why we have to be strategic about setting aside time to meet with God. We need to be strategic because it's something that goes against the grain of like what we just live in every day. Um, and uh, one other thing, two other things I would say about this is one, there is a tendency sometimes to try to go with unsustainable intensity into this practice. Like, we set our goals so high initially that we inevitably fail, and then we just feel so discouraged we can't keep going. But I think it's more helpful at times to start smaller, right, and then to build up into that, to, like, balance what feels restful to you in your soul and what is pushing you or, like, stretching you to do more, to have those things in balance, so maybe it's not starting with the whole day of Sabbath. Like maybe it's starting with a smaller period, like the walk, and then building that into something bigger. Second thing I would say is I find like literal space really helpful. So I live in an 800-square-foot apartment um, because I live in Center City, so it's my fault. Um, and uh, especially, especially since COVID, like that space is my whole life. Like that's where I work. That's where I rest. That's where I eat. 
That's where I take care of my two-year-old daughter. It's all in that one 800-square-foot space. And so um, what I found is that if I, I have designated the left side of my couch as I am facing my couch, that is my space for praying and meeting with God. Like, and if I, if I try to pray somewhere else, like on my desk, it just doesn't, it doesn't feel the same. Like, it, I need that literal space set aside for God. Um, and, and like Jesus, like Jesus went and prayed on a mountain. Like he went away from the people and went into like a desert place or a wilderness place to pray. Like, and Jesus was pretty good at praying. So if Jesus did it, it makes sense that we also would be helpful for us to do it. Um, so again, I think the call is to literally set aside space and time that is holy and set apart for beating God. And I want to emphasize um, two things. One is that, as I said, it's not always the case that, quote, the problem or what's keeping us from meeting God is this lack of intentional um, space and time. Like, there are times that we are doing that and we're fe feeling spiritually dry. So I don't want you to hear that this morning if that's where you're finding yourself, if you're in this place of wilderness, that, like, it's your fault because you're not trying hard enough. So I don't want you to hear that. This is for a specific situation I think that many of us find ourselves in frequently. I do but it's not universal to our Christian experience all the time. So I just want to say that. The other thing I want, to, I want to be really clear about is that many of us can mishear this, including me, because we process our relationship with God dominantly in terms of guilt. Like, that's the where we live all the time. It's like guilt. So when we inevitably, like, don't meet with God and don't set aside this time and, like, fall short, we take that as this feeling of, okay, I'm not good enough, like, I have failed at this, therefore God does not, will not meet with me, it's, it's done, like, I'm just not good enough to have a relationship with God. And it's important to remember that God is not making his love conditional on Israel obeying God and keeping the covenant. Like, God has already chosen Israel, God has already acted for them, God has already loved them, they've already seen how God has done that, and we have seen how God has done that in our lives. And God invites us, he invites us to dedicate time and space to him because he loves us and wants to speak that word of love into our lives. Like, this is an invitation for us. And what happens when we fail? Well, this is the thing. God knows we're going to fail. Like God, when God made this relationship with Israel, God knew Israel wasn't going to do it all the time. And, God, and Israel sometimes succeeded and sometimes failed, often failed. And what did God do in that situation? Did God cast out Israel and say, you're not my people anymore? No. Every time... When he, God had made this invitation, keep my covenant, and they didn't, what did he do? He made the invitation again. He said, you're still my people. I still love you. Here's the invitation again. They failed. Here's the invitation again. Every time. And that's also true of us. If we don't obey God, if we don't keep his covenant, God's response is, here it is again. God's mercies are new every morning. God doesn't reject us. And when we fail, God extends the invitation again. I think of this in terms of God's being a perfect parent to us. And again, I have a two-year-old daughter, and she has gotten to a space recently where she has her own will and um, uh, volition and chooses not to obey me all the time. So for instance, we're trying to go to daycare in the morning, and there's this new pattern where she will get all of the clothes on except the shirt and will then refuse to cooperate with getting the shirt on. I'm like, Grace, come sit in my lap so I can put your shirt on. And she runs to the corner and goes, I'm hiding. Or she just completely ignores what I'm saying and continues to do whatever she's doing, right? And 
if I am being a good dad, which is not a universal experience, but when I'm being a good father, my response to that isn't, well, okay, we're going to go outside. I'm going to throw you outside with no shirt on, right? My response isn't, okay, you're done. You're not my daughter anymore. No, my response is, okay, Grace, come again. Let's get your shirt on. It's just extending that invitation again and again, right? As many times as it takes. As DeGroote says, God whispers to his little children, you are my treasured possession. The invitation is extended to meet with God, not because we have um, done anything, but because God promises to meet us and bless us and reminds us that he loves us and to whisper to us our true identities. If, if we um, enter into this task of setting aside holy space and time for God, trying to please God, our inevitable failure in that process will ironically disable us because we will feel unworthy and guilty. But if we begin from the knowledge, the sure knowledge of God's grace and God's love for us, despite our failures, this gives us the assurance and the comfort to feel God saying to us, you are my treasured possession, and to fall into his arms. Let's pray. God of Sinai, we need your presence and we need to hear your voice. Help us, Lord, encourage us. Meet us and draw us closer to yourself. We pray this in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.